Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Growing Forward, which is the collaborative podcast between New Mexico Political Report and New Mexico PBS, where we look at cannabis in New Mexico. I'm Andy Lyman with New Mexico Political Report, and the show's other co-host, Megan Kamrick, is on vacation this week. So today I'm joined by one of the show's producers, Kevin McDonald. And we'll be talking a bit about an ongoing story I've been covering that involves medical cannabis and taxes. We'll also chat with a New Mexico tax expert for some added context. Hello, Kevin. Hello, and hello, Richard. We'll pop you in here in a minute, but we wanted to start by, uh, Andy, you just kind of filling us in a little bit about some of the reporting you've done. And again, it is has to do with tax issues around the existing cannabis, medical cannabis program. But can you talk us through a little bit of your reporting from late last week, specifically around Sacred Garden? Yeah, so the the issue actually goes back uh, a couple of years, at least, uh, as far as the court case goes. But um, essentially, uh, a medical cannabis producer, Sacred Garden, requested a deduction on several years worth of gross receipts taxes. Um, and they argued that uh, medical cannabis recommendations or recommendations from a doctor to use medical cannabis is essentially the same as a doctor issuing a prescription for, for uh, medication. Um, and the Taxation and Revenue Department disagreed with that reading of it and uh, took the case to the Court of Appeals. I'm sorry, the, it went to the Court of Appeals, where the Court of Appeals ruled in favor of Sacred Garden, uh, arguing that that term prescription is essentially the same as, as a recommendation. Um, then uh, the Tax and Revenue Department took the case to the Supreme Court, where it's sort of pending now. So that's sort of what we're waiting on is uh, the Supreme Court to um, sort of make a ruling on, on where this all falls. And, and just to be clear, um, gross receipts taxes are going to be deductible after June 29th going forward. This is more of an issue of should this, has, should this have been a deductible uh, cost um, in the past? And so if the court says it should have been, then we're talking about actual reimbursements and and money going backwards, right? That's right. And and I think um, uh, our guest Richard can talk a little bit about that. I know I've talked to him about it over the weekend, but yeah, essentially that means that uh, the taxable amount uh, was actually smaller. If, the, if they rule in favor of Sacred Garden, that means their taxable amount would have been smaller, which means that they overpaid in taxes, which would result in a refund, possibly for other producers as well. And uh, again, we talked to the governor about this even recently, and her take on this was that we just need some some clarity here. Yes, uh, right? she said, uh, I, I think she said clarity rules in this case. Um, and, and I think she said she was sympathetic to um, this sort of um, sympathetic to Sacred Garden and producers, and she does believe that it's that it's medicine. Um, it really comes down to legislative intent also. Uh, the question of whether the legislature fully intended for this to be a deductible cost or not. And how far back are we talking about in terms I, of this I believe I, I believe the statute says you can go back three years. Now, there may be some other things because, uh, again, Sacred Garden was going back three years, but I think they started this um, prior. I, I, this whole thing kind of started in 2018, but I think it goes back farther than that. I, I can't remember which dates they were asking for, but um, so that's another, I, I don't quite know what that means, if it would just be three years from the decision or three years from the time. Um, and then, of course, there's all this other uh, P 
period uh, that they could, I guess, challenge it. I'm not exactly sure how that would work. But bottom line is you're talking about what could be potentially a serious chunk of change here. Yes, yes. I mean, even for, I think the amount that Sacred Garden was asking for uh, was something like, I want to say $250,000. I could be wrong on that, but it, but it's it's quite a bit of money, especially if you consider if all the producers go back and ask for that money back. And with most things with the Supreme Court, we don't know exactly when they they might weigh we, into these waters. Yeah, we have an idea. Uh, there's another response due from Sacred Garden in June, June uh, 16th, I think. Um, and then there's another six days after that for the state to again uh, answer to that response. And then from there, I think there is a certain timeline. I'm not sure what it is, but the Supreme Court does have some time to sort of examine this. They could call people in for oral arguments or they could just rule based on, on the filings. Okay. Well, thank you for that update, Andy. And you could read more of his reporting on New Mexico Political Report. Also a good time to mention that you're starting back up your cannabis newsletter. So That's right. Uh, up to get twice, twice, a, twice a month on Friday. So the, the last one, uh, we sent one out last Friday. So not this Friday, but the Friday, but uh, a week from this Friday, you'll another newsletter out. Um, so I think we can get right into our guest. Uh, Richard Anklum is the president and executive director of the New Mexico Tax Research Institute. Thanks so much for joining us today, Richard. Happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Just to start off, can you explain to viewers slash listeners what gross receipts taxes are? I think a lot of us just think of it as a sales tax since that's where we usually see it is on our receipt. But can you give us a, a brief rundown of, of how gross receipts taxes are, how they compare to like say a sales tax? Sure, um, you can analogize it to a broad based sales tax, um, but our tax was created somewhat uniquely um, at about the same time the first sales taxes were, and it's imposed differently rather than transactionally on the transfer of goods at retail, which is the way a lot of sales taxes work. Ours is technically on your gross receipts, every dime you make for whatever reason, unless there's an exemption or deduction that applies. Um, so when things are resold, there's usually a deduction that applies. So you're not paying tax on inventory that you're reselling. You, you pay tax on your gross receipts when you ultimately sell it. Um, in the case with the prescription drugs, there, there was a, an old deduction for prescription drugs that applied generally. Um, the question that came up with with the medical cannabis sales were, are those prescription drugs or are those prescriptions that are used to buy the prescription drugs? And I guess that's the issues before the court. Um, but, it, but at the end of the day, you can think of it as whether the sales tax applied to um, the, the sale of, of the medical marijuana or not. Um, in this case, it's a retail transaction, so. In, in preparation for this conversation we're having now, you and I had uh, a brief discussion about deductions. So first off, can you explain uh, the difference between a tax credit and a tax deduction? And then also, if you wouldn't mind explaining uh, a little bit about where the sale of prescription drugs fall in, in these two distinctions. Sure. Um, a lot of this has been lost in translation over the years because the lawmakers don't understand the distinctions. But generally speaking, you, you have our imposition of gross receipts. If you're in business, engaged in business, you, you're making money, you have gross receipts. And then there's exemptions. And those are things that they never really intended to tax at all. And they don't want you reporting as if you were in business. Things like my wages, I get a W-2. I'm performing services. That's gross receipts, but wages are exempt. So I don't have to report and deduct my wages like I would if I were in business. Um, and they never intended wages to be in. Dividends and interest, 
are exempt from gross receipts and you don't have to report those um, even though they might be in the base. Uh, deductions are those things that they want reported but they don't want to tax. I say they, the lawmakers and taxation revenue. Um, generally, those are things like sale for resale deductions. Walmart doesn't pay tax on the goods that they sell. They, they pay tax when they sell them ultimately to the final consumer. That's the way the system's designed to work, generally speaking. And we use deductions for that. But we also use deductions for things like food and prescription drugs that are designed to be for, for, for social benefit in, in some fashion. And and, and they're reported in exactly the same way. If I sell um, a prescription drug and I'm a, I'm a pharmacy, I deduct those sales. I don't charge or pay tax on them. And I, I, the net remaining balance is, is the non-prescription sales and I end up paying tax on those. Credits can work in different ways, um, but they tend to be used more for social or economic development reasons. They're usually more narrowly targeted and they, they, they're usually, or I shouldn't say usually, they can either be applied on a return or they can be something that you have to fill in an application and, and submit to taxation and revenue or some other authority and get approval before you have the ability to either get a refund or apply that against future taxes. So credits are usually subject to a little more scrutiny and a little more processing and, a usual, and usually more targeted. Um, the film credit falls into that category, the investment credit, things, things of that nature. But there's individual credits that end up on your personal income tax return. So they get confused and they, and they bleed into one another because they all impact your tax liability, what's ultimately subject to tax at the end of the day. So going forward, without, without talking about the, this court case at this, right this at this moment, after June 29th, when we talk about uh, gross receipts taxes being deductible, uh, or the cost be, the, the, the being deductible in their taxes, it means that they just uh, don't report those or, or they don't list those as something that, that gets taxed, right? So that they just right. don't pay it. It would be in their gross receipts and then they would have a deduction which is equivalent to their non-taxable sales. And then the net is whatever was taxable left over. So I have a kind of a, a, maybe a weird question. This came up when I was talking to a medical cannabis producer the other day, and there seems to be maybe a, a debate over um, sort of, who's paying these gross receipts taxes, right? So we know that generally speaking, if you go to buy clothing from someplace, that clothing manufacturer or the retailer pays the gross receipts taxes, but they pass it along to the customer. Um, so I guess in, in terms of medical cannabis, where in your view, um, just because that producer is, is paying the tax bill, um, doesn't that and, and, and I guess the debate comes in, well, we're, we're not charging them gro the, the patient's gross receipts taxes. Um, we just build it into our cost. Is that just sort of philosophical difference of, of who's paying that, right? They're paying the tax bill, but they're, they're either raising their, their prices or putting another line item in there. So ultimately the person buying the product is, is paying it. Well, um, so you're gonna lose half your audience here um, <laughs> with another slightly wonky answer. It's an excellent question. Um, there's two issues really that involved um, legal incidents and economic incidents. I'm not an attorney or an economist, but I play both on TV, obviously. So, so legal incidents is who's legally subject to the tax. In this case, the gross receipts tax, it's the seller. In the case of the cannabis tax, it's the cannabis retailer. That's who it's imposed on. Um, now, whether they separately stated or not, um, it's not required necessarily. Uh, 
most people do. It's it's normal. Other sales tax states, it, their legal imposition is sometimes on the buyer, but the seller is the collector on behalf of the state. Well, does who's legally responsible really change what the ultimate price is? Not usually. Um, it can if mistakes are made, but otherwise it won't. And and incidents, the economist will argue, the economic incidents is more who ultimately foots the bill as opposed to who legally is responsible. And, and that question is, um, you know, everyone's favorite answer, it depends. With sales taxes, you can usually ultimately, you, know, you can usually assume it, it shifts to the buyer. So ultimately it's a consumption tax or, or GRT is sales taxes, they're mostly consumption taxes. And that means the retail, the final transaction, it's gonna get tacked on and, and you're likely gonna be the one to pay the tax, whether it's separately stated or not. Um, so, so sometimes it just means that you're paying a higher price because they, it's the cost of business, right? Yeah, I could charge you ten thousand dollars plus tax, or eleven, or ten thousand, you know, two hundred dollars. Um, it doesn't change the nature of the game necessarily. So, as we've discussed on the podcast before, uh, recreational use cannabis, uh, their sales will include GRT or gross receipts taxes, but also an excise tax. And the legislature approved an incremental increase of that excise tax that works out to about 22% after several years. I forget the date that that, that ends, um, but I think it's a percentage per year for about six years, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So that's on top of the gross receipts taxes. Uh, right. So I kind of have a two-part question for you. Uh, one, just straight across, what are your thoughts on that tax structure, given the fact that you know everyone said 20% is sort of the, the perfect number? Um, of course, it's going to be more than 20% when you put the two taxes together. Right. Um, well, let's go. Let's start with that question. I won't overload you with, with questions. What's the your thoughts on that? Um, because it's a the GRT is a consumption tax. It, it's not weird to me at all that GRT would apply to a retail transaction. It applies to most other retail transactions. Um, if you go buy virtually anything in any store, it's going to be subject to GRT. The fact that the excise tax is levied at the retail level is a little bit weird um, in that you're gonna, you might see two different tax line items or they might just give you a lump sum. Um, in theory, you're supposed to separately state the gross receipts tax now uh, because of the Amazon Wayfair changes, um, but there's no teeth to those requirements. So they, 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 they have the ability to do both. Most states that have a regime like ours do impose the retail sales tax for those reasons. It's like beer and cigarettes. They're not gonna exempt them. Um, they're already subjecting them to a, a higher excise tax. Some of those excise taxes like tobacco and alcohol are actually at the distributor level. So you don't see them, but they're still in the price to your earlier question. Um, it's not like you're not paying those excise taxes if you consume those products, but you only see the sales tax at the end of the day. Here, it's at the retailer level. What sort of uh, research or what have you found, if, if anything at all, uh, because that was sort of the debate of, well, wait a minute, we said 20% um, and now we're talking 12% plus the gross receipts, which is about 20. And now they're saying within six to seven years, we're going to be at something like 22% plus that 7%. Is there anything that you have that shows that that's going to impact revenue? Of course, the big thing was to not drive folks to the illicit market. Um, right. Is, have you found anything to, to I guess, uh, does that still jive with everything if it's 22% plus the gross receipts? You know, I think according to the LFC fiscal impact report, when we're at 13% for the first three and a half years, whatever it is, um, and you add the highest GRT rate to it, if you compare that to 
Arizona or Colorado and you do the same thing, take the excise tax, add the sales tax, um, that we're slightly lower than the maximum potential. Of course, that we're talking about Towski Valley and Tuba City, Arizona, and a few obscure points of reference like that. But we're probably still in the ballpark. Um, you know, whether it stamps out the illicit market is is one question. As you get a rate disparity between the medical market and, and the and the recreational market, you'll see pressure cost pressure, economic incentive to get into the medical market if you can, because you'll get a 20%, 22% discount, so to speak. Um, so th so those you could see those kinds of pressures. And as you increase rates, you increase those pressures. So ultimately, when they phase in those, those additional increments that you referenced, that they amended in toward the end, that, that if there is a problem, it will exacerbate the problem. It should also raise revenue. Um, a little bit more by then, who knows what the future holds? You know, are we still getting tourism from Texas or do they have a program? What, what, what does the, the federal government do in this regard? All of those could have huge implications to how the industry, um, you, you know, can, can deal with their markets and their consumers. Um, so I think that's something to stare at along with the experience of other states. We've seen some states overreach, um, but they're all in unique market conditions. Um, you know, California's program hasn't been the best. Alaska had to reduce rates, um, but it, it appears that some of our neighbors in Oregon have been fairly successful. So um, I think looking at those, because this is new, every a lot of states imposed a variety of different taxes. What we just did is probably about as common as any of those in terms of just an excise tax. Mm -hmm. You could also impose it on THC content. You can impose it, like I said, at different places, distributor levels, um, weight, um, some have hybrids of all of those things. They all add complications. They also add risks. The risk of imposing it at the retail price um, is that say federal action causes the price to fall out or high, a highly competitive market, then, then you could see tax revenues go down as a result. But it's also the simplest thing to do. It's just math, you know, and, and a few retailers for the tax department to stare at. So um, a THC program requires a massive testing regime and we don't have one of those at this moment. So. It does seem like the fairest and maybe the easiest to understand uh, when you talk about THC content or any of those other factors. There's so many things, and you, uh, of course, then you're you're affecting other parts of this whole program, right? Because right. then you incentivize to lower the THC level, which I'm sure is good um, if if you're talking about intoxicant levels. But then there's probably patients out there that say we need that higher THC. All those other problems that could go into these complicated tax schemes. So. Right. I can if you see have that. a weight-based regime, you only go after the, the most potent product. You won't dare grow anything less because you're not going to get as good a yield, right? So, so yeah, every, every, any, any approach has its pros and cons, but I think what we did, you know, for now, at least in the current environment is, 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 is workable and we'll have to see how it goes. You know, having it become effective June 29th is a little weird, but uh, it's effectively July 1. So. Yeah. And that, that just, for, for other folks who are listening or watching, that's sort of a, that weird date just really came down to the way that the law was written. It said this goes into effect uh, 90 days after passage or after it's signed, right? So it just happened to be when the governor signed it that 90 days after was June 29th. Um, yeah, just, I've also heard that the argument there was that um, producers be licensed at that point. And so that's the time they need to grow to actually have plants to sell come April 1st. Yes, I think that's, an, that's another thing that many producers are tend to get frustrated about in my experience talking to them that 
um, that the regulators just don't understand how long it takes to produce a, a crop of cannabis, medical or otherwise. Um, and Richard, just to, so I'm clear, um, I, I, I think I heard that most of the models for these tax rates uh, or models for, for revenue projections were based on the assumption that the illicit market is not going away, that there's still people out there um, buying illicit cannabis. Do you, is that accurate? Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't think they assume a, a switch gets flipped, um, but that's where most of your demand in theory comes from initially. But it's it's real hard to predict demand in a case like this because other than looking at other states, because the tourism equation is different in every state, even here it's changed because Arizona is going to has gone online, um, but Texas hasn't, Colorado obviously has. Uh, how many people are quick consumers because it's a new thing? Um, but economically speaking, if I choose to buy a cannabis product in, in lieu of a six pack of beer where I'm paying a gross receipts tax and an excise tax, um, you know, nothing may have changed economically. It's, it's where you're getting new money and that's typically out of the illicit market and tourism. Um, and, and that's, you know, what, what they hope to see. The numbers aren't staggering. In 24, where they, where they kind of see it fully implemented at the first lower rate, the 13% rate, which is shared one third with local governments, it only raises 42 million general fund, the excise tax itself. Um, however, the GRT raises, you know, uh, an, another 30 million. Um, so when you combine them, and of course the locals get a pretty significant share of that. So the, the municipal governments, cities and, and, and the counties, they share in both the gross receipts tax and the cannabis tax. So um, it'll be interesting politically, once everyone has their uh, fiscal fingers in the game, it, it's hard to change the rules. So I hope we got it close to right. Um, but it looks like the department will be able to administer it. It's part of it's subject to the Tax Administration Act, which governs governs most of the state's taxes, which means it, it will be dealt with like the GRT. So you mentioned the three-year statute of limitations for refunds. That's just the general rule for most of New Mexico's taxes, and and it'll be true of the cannabis tax. Um, so, so other that, than that weirdness with the retailer maybe being completely subject, it, it looks administrable at least. Um, but if the rates we'll have to keep an eye on those rates because that is usually the caveat. If your rate's too high, ideally you'll drive the illicit market out completely. That's never going to happen, especially, um, well, I take that back. Um, I guess it's easier to grow your own than, than make your own beer. Um, but, uh, how much of a, you know, home homegrown market competes with, um, you know, that becomes incentivized as you raise tax rates, raise price levels. Um, so you incentivize all the bad things with higher taxes, but without the taxes, you don't make money for the schools and other things like that. So that's, that's the balance the policymakers have to strike. It'll be interesting to see. It seems to me, at least in my, my view, especially somebody who's tried brewing my own beer before, um, it, 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 whether it was easy or hard, it, it kind of doesn't matter. It's just, it is a lot easier to run to the store and buy a six pack than um, it is. try to figure out all the, what you did wrong. And so I don't know anything about growing much anything other than besides even, even cannabis. I mean, um, but I, I would, I would guess that there's going to be a certain level of people trying it and then realizing that whatever that their product doesn't compare to what you can buy at the retail right. store. Right. Um, a couple of things real quick um, in the timeline that just point out the kind of tie to a couple of these things. So tomorrow we're supposed to get our first look at the proposed rules for producers 
Um, the RLD talking about releasing that by even eight o'clock in the morning. Again, just proposed rules, and then there'll be public hearings and things to, to move that on down the line. But some of these things may come up. Um, so that, and also the Cannabis Regulation Act called for a uh, supply and demand study, more to do with plant limits and plant counts overall. Um, but Superintendent Linda Trujillo said that they may have that back as early as the end of next, uh, end of this week. So we might get some more understanding on that as well. One, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, this is, I guess, maybe more in my mind, maybe more trivia than anything else, because it sounds like this happens a lot. But uh, Richard, when we were uh, sort of setting up this interview and chatting um, over the weekend, uh, you brought up something interesting or something I found interesting, which was how the, the, the tax gets taxed, basically, that there's two taxes in, in recreational use. Um, and I think the excise tax or maybe GRT comes first and then excise tax. So essentially GRT is getting or would be getting taxed as well, right? It's actually the other way around. Okay. Um, well, that's a good question. It could go either way, but in the GRT excludes GRT actually from its base and a few other taxes, um, but it doesn't include the, exclude the cannabis tax. So if you're collecting money for another tax, it does not suggest necessarily that that money isn't subject to taxes as well. And that happens in other cases. And I, I think that was expected by the uh, revenue estimators as well. So it's probably, I mean, uh, transactional, uh, when you're looking at just transactions, probably not a big deal, but yeah, maybe it's just a little little bit extra revenue there because you're taxing another tax base because you're taxing, the final tax is taxing the total, right? Which includes right. whatever taxes prior to exactly. that. Exactly, there's no deduction for the other piece or exclusion. Thanks for joining us, Richard. So Happy much. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for joining us. Again, I'm Andy Lyman with New Mexico Political Report. I share co-hosting duties with Megan Kamrick, a New Mexico PBS correspondent and on-air host with KUNM. Like I said, she's on vacation today. So we're joined by Kevin McDonald, who's one of our producers, uh, along with Bryce Dix. Um, and just a, a note, we are in the process of recording and producing season three of Growing Forward but we'll probably have uh, some more of these quick updates. Be sure to follow both New Mexico PBS and New Mexico Political Report on social media so you can get those updates uh, or alerts on, on other events like this. Uh, but until then, thanks for, for tuning in.